The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 13. This message was given during the evening service on September 18, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Series number three, as your note sheet says, 1 Peter on Sunday nights, 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 9. I've entitled, A Joyful Salvation. Probably I would have retitled it a joyfully suffering salvation, but I'm not changing it at this point because both concepts are important. The series, as I just said, encompasses the four verses, 6 to 9, so let's read them. First Peter 1, 6 to 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while if necessary you've been distressed by various trials, so the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your salvation, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What a passage. I do a kind of a rolling thunder type of sermon preparation. I do an initial outline. Then I do an initial study of the verses, speeding through them. And then I start to flush them out week by week, more in depth. I think I get everything figured out. I go back to restudy it each week from the initial outline that I've written. And everything changes as I add or subtract things that I've not seen before. God's Word is definitely living because even the best Christian books we tend to read once and then put them down and go on to something else, but not the Word of God. Let's follow your outline going back to verse 6. Christians are to be joyful despite trials. Trials equals suffering. Letter A, the Christian's joy is supposed to be connected to his salvation, not good times. In this you greatly rejoice. It's an ongoing durative. Durative means continuous in the Greek. It's ongoing in this you continuously rejoice. In what? What he just talked about in verses 3 to 5, our salvation and our hope of heaven. That's the in this. Then letter B, for the second half of verse 6, Christian joy is to operate on the battlefield of suffering. It's not either or. vast majority of Christians believe either I'm suffering or I'm joyful. When I'm suffering, I lose joy. When I have joy, I'm not suffering. That's not true. That's why he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now. It's to take place even during these issues. And then he mentions four marks of all Christian suffering that all believers have to varying degrees at different times. Four marks. And the first one is Christian suffering is temporary for a little while. We looked at that. Little while refers to not you'll only suffer for a few minutes a day or a week in your Christian life, but it's referring as we studied that in depth to your Christian life, your entire life in Christ is just a little while compared to eternity. The second mark is what we're currently in, if necessary. In the future, the third mark is you've been distressed. The fourth mark is various trials. So the key, word, key words in mark number one are little while. Key word in mark number two is necessary. Key word in mark number three in the future is the word distressed. Key word in mark number four is various. Little while, necessary, distressed, various. 
And there is massive amounts of gold to dig out of this verse so we get a full picture of what our suffering is in Christ. Again, in your note sheet under mark number two, and the dotted line shows you where review ends and new material begins. What is necessary to be accomplished in our lives through suffering? Suffering we saw last Sunday night, the first of I think there are six necessary reasons why as a believer you and I need to suffering, to suffer. Suffering is necessary to, as we saw last Sunday night, number one, fill in the blanks by way of review, to humble believers and make them teachable. To humble believers and make them teachable. These are not in the text, obviously. When we think about suffering being necessary, we have to look from God's perspective why he's doing this. And there are other passages that I've done the work on for you to find out why is it necessary that I should go through suffering. Suffering is rarely logical. It's rarely timed perfectly. It doesn't make sense to us. Job is a good example of that. How could he ever figure out that Satan and God were having a discussion and he was a laboratory rat in that study in the book of Job that God was allowing Job to be attacked by Satan. His friends had no clue what was going on. They just assumed uh, ignorantly that he was going through such bad stuff because he was sinning. It had nothing to do with what was going on. God does not clue us in to why he's doing things specifically in our lives just like he did with Job. But there are six general reasons why he allows suffering, and this was the first one we looked at. Number two in your note sheet, new material. What is the reason for suffering in general for all believers? Suffering is necessary to wean us off worldly things. Wean us off worldly things. You all know what it means to wean, right? To wean off, reduce, right? Like weaning a child off of breastfeeding, right? Okay. To wean us off worldly things. So, again, with the, with the first reason, do you want to be humble and teachable? Then you need suffering. Number two here, do you really want to be less desirous towards worldly things? Of course we do. Well, then what do you need? Suffering. You're not going to be weaned off of worldly things unless you suffer. John 16. Gospel of John. Verse 16. Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. Disciples are going to be scattered. He predicts that in verse 32, which means he's in control if he knows the future each to his own and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. They were going to abandon Christ. He predicts that in verse 32. Verse 33, these things I've spoken to you, you all, the disciples, implied secondarily us, so that in me, notice you have to be in Christ, in me as believers you may have peace. He just mentions peace in a passage about scattering and tribulation, which tells us we can have peace in the midst of suffering if we are in Christ. This is a primary mark as we're looking at 1 Timothy 1, grace, mercy, and peace. It's a primary mark. So as we learned in 1 Timothy 1, grace and mercy are the power conduits that produce peace. Peace is mentioned here in verse 33 in connection to suffering. So 
primary evidence that I am a believer, one of many that are mentioned in the Bible, is I have consistent peace in the midst of suffering. In the world, the world system, you have tribulation. The word there is the word for pressure. Phlipsis. Phlebometer is an old name, if I remember right, for a blood pressure cuff, because it creates pressure. And that's from the English back to the Latin to the Greek. This is the word phlipsis, pressure. You have continuous pressure in this world system. As long as you're a believer in me, in the world system, this is hitting you. But you are to take courage. That's a command. Be brave. Why? I have overcome the world. The overcomer is with us. The world system is overcome through Christ. So this is an allusion to the fact that the world system is not desirous. The world system is filled with tribulation. We should not love the world or the things that are in the world, as John also tells us later on in his first epistle. So this is just an allusion to the fact that the world system is an antagonistic world system against believers. In the world system, you have tribulation. I've overcome that. The idea is live for me. Have peace in me. You're going to suffer. Don't love the world system. They want you dead. Let's look, go back to Job that I was alluding to earlier. Job chapter 19. His friends, his wonderful friends who should have kept their mouth shut, keep attacking him. Verse 1 of chapter 19, And Job responded, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you've insulted me. That's terrible what they're doing to him. They think they know what's going on. Don't counsel somebody through guesswork. You can give wrong advice and make a person's suffering and hardships even worse. If you don't know why somebody's going through what they're going through, you don't have any biblical counsel to give, then we should keep our mouths shut. And he's counted how many times he's been insulted in verse 310. Now, go down to verse 23. He, goes, he bypasses them after he begs them to pity him in verse 21. And they're persecuting him. So he's suffering not only from Satan, but from these friends. How, how that is always the case. A godly believer is going to suffer at the hands of the world system and Satan and also suffer at the hands of carnal believers. Verse 22. But look at verse 23. He focuses on the Lord. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Job 19.23. That with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. His focus is turned away here from his plight and from these wicked friends. And he's focusing on the Lord. The suffering is making him not trust unreliable counsel. And unreliable counsel, write it down under number two, Unreliable counsel is one of the worldly things we face and are attacked with. Unreliable counsel from unbelievers, unreliable counsel from ignorant, carnal believers. We have to be very careful who we seek counsel from. It's a worldly thing. 
And so because he's being attacked by them, he's begging them to pity him. In verse 21, they'll have none of that. They're not pitying him. He said, the hand of God has struck me. He doesn't know what's going on in verse 21. This will be, in verse 21, this is one of the problems he's going to fixate on. He's counseling himself there, and he's wrong as well with that. And this is going to lead him to sin against God later on in the, in the book, where he has to repent. So it isn't the hand of God striking him, it's Satan striking him that God allows. And so he's driving himself back to his Redeemer, moving away from worldliness, worldly counsel. This is what suffering does. It makes us not trust others, but only the Lord. Revelation 14, go to the New Testament again. Revelation 14. During the tribulation. Christians, believers are going to, who have been saved after the rapture during the tribulation. The beast and his image have arisen in verse 9. If you receive the mark of the forehead... That's instant hell. There's no way out of that. There, this is a decision to submit to satanic things. The mark of the forehead for the beast. If any professed believer was to do that in the tribulation, they can't possibly be saved. No one believer can be saved once the mark's put there. Since there are many people that come to faith in Christ, there's going to be unbelievers who do not receive the mark. Verse 10. If anyone worships the beast, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. See that in verse 10? That tells us once the mark is on a human being, they're going to hell. They receive wrath. It's a different way to evangelize than we have now. Just imagine if you were one of the 144,000 during the tribulation. You're walking down the street, and you're proclaiming Christ, and this guy walks up, and he's got the mark of the beast, 666, on his forehead. I want to know more about the Lord. Sorry, I can't help you. You're going to hell. Can you imagine? That's incredible, isn't it? Now, the New Testament counterpart to that is apostasy. When somebody apostatizes, they can't possibly be saved. And we know that because of the wheat and the tares, Matthew 13. You leave them alone. If you don't know who the secret unbelievers are in the church, but you suspect somebody, even though there's no evidence, leave them alone in Matthew 13, excuse me, and he will destroy the tares. He will remove them from the wheat on Judgment Day. This is also what Jude tells us, the same type of thing. So the mark of, of the beast, so to speak, is in the New Testament, before the rapture, is apostasy. An apostate, by definition, is not just an unbeliever. We need to remember this. An apostate is one who permanently turns from faith in Jesus Christ, which they profess. They are individuals who claim to be born-again Christians. We're not talking about Catholics. We're not talking about cult leaders who claim that they're saved, but obviously they believe a false gospel. Apostates are not Catholics who believe in good works and claim to be Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses who seek to do good works but do not believe Jesus is Jehovah God. Those aren't apostates. Those are false religions. Those are outright unbelievers. If they were all apostates, by the way, there would never be Catholics who got saved. Or Jehovah's Witnesses to God say, because apostates can't be saved. 
No, what is an apostate? Verse 4, Jude, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. There are individuals who are in the church who claim to be believers. Adamant, I'm a born-again Christian, live like the devil. And as I mentioned this morning, they hold to that foundational, satanic, fundamental of satanic faith. I can be saved and never be transformed. I can be saved and never repent. I can be saved and fake my Christian life. That's not true. Do they really go to hell? Yeah, look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they are in the same way as these, same way as these, the apostates mentioned in verse 4, indulging in gross immorality, went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of an eternal fire. There it is. And what is an apostate known as? Verse 4, pretend to be saved. They creep in unnoticed. What else are their marks? Permanently ungodly, verse 4. Turn the grace of God into freedom to be licentious. And they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. So two fundamentals of apostasy and satanic false belief. Number one, I can be saved without any transformation. Number two, I can be saved without ever receiving Christ as Lord. They deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. What else are they marked by? Verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, here it is, they defile the flesh. They're filled with moral evil, completely polluted, never repent, and they reject authority. They rebel against authority. We've seen so many apostates leave here. When they're confronted, they reject authority, church authority. They just leave. And they're revilers. These are not innocent individuals in verse 8, are they? No. Back to Revelation. So that's the New Testament counterpart to the mark. You say, well, if God's going to separate them out and there are tares among the wheat, then we never know when there's an apostate? Of course we do. We, we can know sometimes when there's apostates when they make themselves known. And how do they make themselves known? They renounce the lordship of Jesus Christ. They live lawless, evil lives, never repenting. Claim adamantly to be saved. They revile authority. They will not listen. They will not be confronted. They will not repent. They are non-transformational, born-again Christians. They're going to hell. But here in Revelation 14, you have the mark of the beast being put on people, which makes, makes them doomed. Now look at verse 13. Revelation 14, verse 13. 12 says, here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments and their faith is in Jesus Christ. The saints here refers to tribulation saints. And they persevere under terrible persecution and death in the tribulation. Verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Notice, they are transformational true believers. Die in the Lord. They believed in the Lordship of Christ. They rest with their deeds following with them. They showed by their life, their repentance, their warring against sin, their love of righteousness, their wanting to do God's will. They're showing that they're true believers. That's the deeds follow with them. And they have no use for the world system during the tribulation. None. No use. So write this down. Suffering makes us no longer want the world system. We look at everything different when we're suffering. 
We look at the church differently. We don't naively say everyone who makes a profession is saved. We look at the world system differently. The whole world system is under Satan and they're against us. They're against Christianity. I won't trust their news. I won't trust their politicians. I won't trust the entertainment. Because they're my enemy, suffering. I suffer at the hands of unbelievers in the church and in the world system. Why would I glory in the world system? Why would I do that? And that's why 1 John, go there. John warns us about this. 1 John chapter 2. Suffering makes us not trust the world system. A carnal believer is wide open to everything in the, in, in the world system. I talk to professed believers. Oh, Trump is our savior. Or, or Biden is. And oh, we need him to save our country. That's a carnal believer. Uh, or always talking about sports, or always talking about movies, or always talking about the things of this world. They're in love with the world. They're not godly. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, the world system, or the things that are in the world. And why aren't we to do that? Because we suffer in this world system. So a godly believer looks at everything, the, the politicians, the unbelievers we work with, the entertainment. I don't trust any of it. They're the ones that are causing me suffering. I'm tempted by them. They give me false counsel. These are not people I can trust. Carnal believers in the church, I'm not going to trust them. They, they, they cause me suffering. The suffering shows me they're not to be relied on. And then when we turn to entertainment, we have to be careful and realize that the enemy is producing entertainment. doesn't mean all entertainment is wrong, but we look at it with a Somewhat dangerous, careful look in our minds. We don't just naively open ourselves up to all philosophies. We don't watch worldly talk shows and listen to all their opinions on the view and everything else. And Oh, this is wonderful. What do they have to say? That's a carnal believer. We don't trust the world system because it's run by the evil one. And they want to pump us, pump us full of their evil. What is the world system marked by? Verse 17, the world is passing away. Not just the physical world, this is the world system because he talks about it. Lusts, the world is passing away because of its lusts. So the whole world is attacking us, causing us to suffer by appealing to our lusts. Pride is mentioned in verse 16. But he comes right back to it. Don't love the world. Verse 15, it's passing away. Its lust is going to pass away. The one who does the will of God abides forever. It always goes back to that. We saw that this morning, the will of God in the Old Testament. We've seen it in Matthew 7. A true believer follows the will of God. We see it in verse 17 here. You does the will of God. This is so important. Suffering at the hands of the world system weans us off of it. Carnal believer seeks advice from unbelievers. A rebellious carnal believer is wide open to the news. Oh, did you read this? It's so true. How do you know that? A carnal, a carnal believer is wide open to any entertainment they want. We're free in Christ. That's that licentiousness we read back in Jude. I don't care what I watch. I can watch anything I want. I'm, I'm strong. A godly believer does not take advice from unbelievers or carnal believers. Does not, is not wide open to the news and trust everything in it. We're discerning. A carnal believer does not move wide open to partake of the philosophies and entertainments of this world system. But these are the things most believers talk about, which shows how carnal they are. 
One Puritan said, faith can turn its back to the world's friendships and enjoyments. Faith can turn its back to the world's friendships and enjoyments and embrace the greatest sufferings of the world when called to do it. This will prove the faith to be strong and true. What does a carnal believer do? They avoid suffering. They want to make friends with the lost. They want everyone to like them. They listen to the counsel of the lost. They compromise their morals before the lost. They don't want to suffer. They want to believe what the world tells us. Want to accept their entertainments and their fun. Suffering strips us of that. This is our enemy in verse 15. The world system is our enemy. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. That's not a backslider, by the way. That's a fundamental misinterpretation of 1 John. This is not a book about backslidden Christians versus godly Christians. It's in contrast of apostates who claim to be believers versus true believers. This goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 6. So when it says, when John says the love of the Father is not in him, he's saying if we permanently love the world system, its, con its counselors, friendships with the world, the politics of the world, the entertainments of the world, and this is what we live for, we're not saved. It's an evidence we're not believers. He says if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is an evidence of not being converted. Okay. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. The one that says, I've come to know him, that's confidence. Chapter 2, verse 4. Excuse me, not chapter 4, verse 2. I apologize. Chapter 2, verse 4. The one who says, I've come to know him, that's a testimony of conversion, and does not, this is a state of being, continuous, does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not what? In him. That phrase, not in him. Him is referring to an unbeliever. It's referring to an unbeliever. Verse 8 of chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have never sinned into the past, that's what perfect active indicative means there. If we have never sinned back into the past, this is we who claim to be believers. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So chapter 2, verse 15. If anyone loves the world, that state of being, this is who we are. The love of the Father is what? Not in him. That is not a backslider. Again, the contrast is back in chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie about what? Everything. That they have fellowship with him and aren't walking in darkness. And we do not practice the truth. And the contrast is the true believer in verse 7. In chapter 1, verses 6, 8, and 10 are not backslidden believers. They're apostates. Verses 6, 8, and 10 are apostates. Verses 7 and 9 are the true believers. We don't love the world. At times we do, we repent of it. We fail with, sometimes we take advice from unbelievers and we realize how stupid I was. I'm not going to take that anymore. Or we listen to the news and we just wide open accept it. Or we, 
watch entertainment. Don't care what we're watching. I just need to relax tonight. We're fools. But then we feel guilty and then we repent. That's not what's going on in chapter 2, verse 15. This is the state of being. Back to your note sheet. Number three, why do we need to suffer? In general, specific context, we don't always know. Just as Job, the specific context, we don't know. He didn't know. We know because we know what was going on, but he didn't know. But in general, number three, teach us, suffering is necessary to teach us to value God's blessings. Teach us to value God's blessings as opposed to whining over life's pains. Teach us to value God's blessings as opposed to whining over life's pains. We're not walking by the Spirit when all we do is whine. Now let's define the difference between grief and whining. Okay? This is very necessary under number three because we can have false guilt. The difference between grief and whining. Okay? Godly believer first. Grieves. James talks about that. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Grieve over sin. Grieve over the state of the world. Godly believers do. Grieve over the difficulties of having to live for Christ in a fallen world. We say things, the godly believer says things like, this is so hard. The suffering's wearing me out. So we grieve over the difficulties of life. We grieve over suffering in the church. We grieve over sin. We grieve over fake believers, ignorant believers. This is part of suffering. This is the grief. Well, isn't grief sin? No, it's not, because Ephesians tells us the Holy Spirit grieves over us when we sin. Is the Holy Spirit sinful? When he grieves? See, a carnal believer doesn't grieve over sin. A carnal believer doesn't grieve over suffering for Christ's name. A carnal believer doesn't grieve over apostasy and fakery in the church. And the grief isn't personal. It's not like, oh, woe is me. The godly believer just hates to see lying, deception, and error in the world and in the church. That's godly grief. The Lord grieves over that. What's whining? So grief is this. Woe. Here's whining. Woe is me. I don't care so much about apostasy, suffering for the faith, and I'm not so concerned about all these people going to hell, and I'm not so concerned about fakes in the church. I'm upset that this is happening to me. Ooh, that hurt. It's all about me. I'm sick of this in my life. That's whining. That's a carnal believer. Whining is personally being upset that others are doing this to me. Godly grief is upset that the church is being blasphemed, that Jesus Christ is being blasphemed, and it's a weariness of having to persevere and suffer in a climate of godliness, godlessness in the church and in society. Far different. It's an outward look at what's going on, the grieving godly believer, so sad and upset. And yet Christians have come along and say, oh, stop being so negative. That's not being negative. Otherwise, we'd have to call God negative for grieving. So negative, God. How blasphemous is that? But does God whine? 
No. He's grieved over evil in the world and in the church. That's what a godly believer does. The whiner comes along and says, this is all about me. Sick of this going on in my life. That's not, that's not grieving for the faith. First Peter chapter 4. Our epistle will are in and we'll close with these references and this uh, third reason why we're to suffer in general. First Peter chapter 4. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Okay, keep on rejoicing. 1 Peter 4.13, what are we rejoicing in? Suffering for Christ, so that also with the revelation of his glory you might rejoice with exaltation. It's, it's rejoicing in suffering for Christ. It's rejoicing in our salvation. It is not rejoicing in pain. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, in verse 14, you are blessed. So we're grieving over the name of Christ being attacked. We're grieving over the horrible sin and the deception going on among professed believers. And we weary with the pain of suffering. But we don't whine. The godly believer says, I'm so blessed, in verse 14, to suffer for the name of Christ. I'm so blessed that the glory of God rests on me for suffering for Christ. To do his will will bring suffering. I'm so thankful that he enables me to persevere. Trials bring perseverance. I'm grieving over the wickedness of this world. I hate this world system. I hate the apostasy and fakery in the church. It brings tears to my eyes. I'm so saddened by this. That's a righteous, righteous grief. But at the same time that we're grieving over the horrible things going on in the church and in society, we have joy in our salvation. One last reference, Romans 8. Romans 8. I hope you understand then the difference between whining in grieving. If you reverse those, you can feel sinful grieving and you can feel righteous whining. We should have a sad countenance over what's going on in the last days in our world and in the church. It should etch our face with sadness. But internally, we rejoice in our salvation in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's assurance of salvation. He only does that for godly believers. Okay, verse 16. You can't trust any self-testimony that you're a believer if you're not godly. How do we know this? Verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We know the terms led, controlled, filled, these are evidences, walk, walking by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. These are all evidences of a godly believer. Led in the Greek in verse 14 means led by the Spirit, to be guided by the Spirit. He does not guide a carnal believer. The Spirit guides us, directs us as we yield to the Word. Okay? And that's the person... He's talking about in verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. There it is. The suffering I'm receiving as a believer. The hands of unbelievers, the world system, the media. This tells me I'm a believer. I'm suffering at their hands. I'm not trying to join with them. They're attacking me. They're my enemy. Well, can't I ever have friends that are unbelievers? Sure, but you have to be wary 
You have to be very wary of them. And you never seek an unbeliever's friend. I don't care if you've had a lifelong unbelieving friend your entire life. I don't care if they're willing to go down the river with you, as they used to say in the old days. Go down the river and, with the rapids. I don't care if they've saved your life. You tripped and were going to fall over the edge of a cliff and this lifelong friend grabbed your hand and saved you. You do not trust ever the counsel of an unbeliever. We don't do that. We're to be led by the Spirit, led by the Word, and seek the counsel of the godly. So we don't trust them because they're our enemy. Even if we have some friends, we don't trust them. They will make us suffer. All you have to do is take a really good unbelieving friend and keep witnessing to them. You'll find out how much of a friend they are with you. Or family members. You keep confronting their sin, you'll find out how much, of a, how much they really love you when you confront their sin. They will show you what they really think of you. And you'll suffer. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed for us, to us. That's back to the little while aspect, Mark number one. We're going to be revealed in heaven to have great glory in Christ and to live for him, and all this suffering is for nothing. So number three, we value God's blessing. We're so blessed that we could suffer for him. Instead of whining about what's wrong with my life, the godly believer says, I expect to suffer, and may I only suffer, not because I'm acting like unbelievers and sinning like they are and being out of his will, but may I suffer for righteousness' sake. And then I'll grieve over the pain and having to endure pain at times, as Job did, when he said his pain was insufferable. But yet he was godly. And we rejoice that we can suffer for the cause of Christ. That's a whole different world than whining. Dear Father, forgive us because we always at times do whine. We think we deserve better. Why can't we rather glory in you and the privilege of suffering for you? May we walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit so we're not concerned about ourselves like John the Baptist. You must increase, we must decrease. We are not important. It doesn't matter what happens to us, what injustices. What wrongs are done to us? We're nothing. We're slaves. You suffered. Why shouldn't we? Help us to think eternally, I ask in your precious name. Amen.